0: Hey, are you or someone you care about considering, dealing with, or being through a divorce or separation? Well, you're in the right place. You don't have to do this alone. There are people who care and want to help. Hi, I'm Dina Court, an author, blogger, publisher, and empowerment coach. Thanks for joining me on the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast. You are going to hear from our team of experts and professionals how to navigate this difficult transition in your life easier, more efficiently, and with better outcomes. Did you know we host online divorce resource groups that are free to attend and everyone is welcome? Check out the links in our show notes and be sure and join us. We love bringing experts to you. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website DivorceMagazineCanada.com and stay tuned at the end for the legal language. Ready? Here we go. I love busting myths and another one that says lawyers don't care is going to be busted today when you meet our special guest. So what about your property? You probably have questions about what happens to your property during a divorce or a separation. Well today we're going to jump in and join one of the online divorce resorts groups that we host that are free to attend and anybody is welcome whether you are someone who has questions about your own personal divorce or separation or somebody near you or in your family or a friend or you are a professional looking to meet and network with other professionals this is the place where you can do that and the schedule is all on our events page divorcemagazinecanada.com slash events and that information is in the show notes today's topic is about your property what about our property and our keynote speaker is Christine Shepherd and she is a family lawyer who has lots of information for you today. I would suggest that you also watch this on our YouTube channel so you can see the slides that she's presenting. Now let's hop into this meeting and get started. So welcome everyone to the Online Divorce Resource Group. We are talking today about our property and how it is affected during a divorce, some things you might want to consider. Now, our disclaimer, Divorce Magazine Canada, all our groups, our blog, all our content is intended to educate and provide quality, credible resource information. The contents should not be used as factual until consultation with the appropriate professionals for any guidance. Divorce Magazine Canada does not constitute endorsements for nor liability for any claims made in the presenting of this information. So basically, we're here to help educate and inform you and really uh, encourage you to talk to the experts that can speak to you specifically about your concerns or your case. So welcome Christine Shepard. She is with us here from uh, Smith and Little. She is a family law lawyer and there's her beautiful picture on the screen. She has a slideshow for us and then we will have time for some questions as well. So if you have a question, even if it's during her presentation, please drop it in the chat. And I will then share all of those questions with her uh, either during the presentation or at the end of the presentation so that we can all learn from your questions as well. Welcome, Christine. Please tell us a bit about yourself and uh, here we go. Admit some more people Um, (laughs) and go ahead and, and share what you have to offer for us today. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Dina. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, yeah, as Dina mentioned, I am a family lawyer. I'm based out of Calgary. Um, so maybe I'll just go to my mandatory disclaimer as well. Um, my comments today are really only for Alberta property law. This is not something that you can transfer from jurisdictions, although I'm sure there's lots of overlap between provinces and things like that, but um, I am trained in Alberta. This is for Alberta property law today. I'm going into my 10th year of practice, so um, I hopefully know a bit about what we're going to be talking about. Um, as Dina mentioned, I'm certainly happy to address questions as we go. The purpose of my presentation is really to talk about how property division works in a divorce and what the basic principles are so that uh, everybody hopefully can leave with a bit of a general understanding about what it means when we're looking at property division as part of a divorce. So, having said that, there's a lot of gray area in some of the principles I'll be talking about, and um, there's a lot of different nuance considerations for property law. So um, whenever I, I say things like the general rule is, it's because there's always exceptions to those general rules. I will address some of those exceptions, but um, this doesn't replace the importance of having a lawyer talk to you specifically about your circumstances if, uh, you know, what I'm talking about doesn't apply to you. So uh, not meant to give legal advice on uh, various things here, but just provide general information, so hopefully you can uh, have that baseline level of understanding. So why is this important? Um, As I'm sure we all know, there's so many Canadians who are going to go through a divorce and most of those people don't just have property problems, but they may also need to address what they're going to do with children, right? How are we going to parent them? What does child support look like? What does spousal support look like? Are we going to waive it? Is there something payable? So I'm mentioning all of this. I certainly don't have time to address all of these topic areas, but when we're looking at these different topic areas, property is a piece of the puzzle. It's one piece and it's a very important one, but it does need to fit into that global context of an overall settlement, especially when we're talking about support um, because often there can be trade-offs of support settlements and property settlements. But um, today we're just gonna be talking about property. So these are some of the things that people have said to me in my office or on the street. I want to, I guess, shed some light on some of these common misconceptions or myths, or some of them are a little bit true, but not all the way true. So, um, again, if you have questions or you've heard these things, please feel free to pop them in the chat because um, I also have a blog on my website where I like to debunk these property myths and things like that. So let me know what's out there. But yeah. Um, I think some of the most important ones are, you know, if you own a home together as spouses, if you move out, people are very worried about losing their property interest there. Um, so that is a myth that is not true. Um, you can move out, especially if you're married, that is, um, you know, your homestead. So you can move out um, or our property will be valued at the date of separation is another really key one that we'll get into why that's so important later. Um, Investing inheritances, when partners can claim to, things like that, are also some of the other topics that we'll go over. Um, So let me know if there's other things that you would like to be or to have addressed as well as we move through it. So our starting point is the legislation when we're looking at how separating spouses or divorcing spouses are going to be dividing property. The Family Property Act will apply to you if you have separated after January 1st, 2020. Um, because we're now you know, a good way through 2023, that's most of the people I see in my office, but certainly there are some who have separated before then. Um, bear in mind, my comments may be very different if your date of separation is before uh, 2020 and if you're not married. Um, you can be separated, but living in the same home. This is different from some other laws out there, but it's very clear in Alberta, you can be separated living in the same home. And we're looking at factors like, you know, are you still living together as a married couple or are you more roommates or co-parents, right? Are you not going on vacation anymore? You're separating your finances. Maybe one is living in the basement, the other one's upstairs and you're just parenting your kids together, but that's really it, right? So things like that, we want to look at. Uh, And then the other important thing as well is you need to be living in Alberta as a habitual resident here or um, have your statement of claim filed in Alberta. You also, to file a statement of claim in Alberta for divorce, you need to be living here for at least one year. So there are some requirements before this property regime will come into effect. But if these factors apply to you, then this is uh, the law that we are going to apply. Uh, It's important to note that even if you're not legally married, if you do qualify as adult interdependent partners, this Family Law uh, Property Act does apply to you as well. If you're adult interdependent partners, you live together for more than three years, or you have a permanent relationship and a kid together, or you have an agreement to be an adult interdependent partner. I haven't focused a lot on what it means to be adult interdependent partners, given that this is a divorce group, but just in case uh, we have some unmarried people who have property together and might fall into this category, I have included it as well. Um, briefly, a relationship of interdependence is that you share in one another's lives, you're emotionally committed, and you function as an economic and domestic unit. Um, there are lots more, um, I guess, factors that a court will consider when looking at whether one is an adult interdependent partner or not. Um, Essentially, you know, are you exclusive? Do you have a conjugal relationship? Have you formalized your legal obligations, etc? Um, again, I won't go through that in a lot of detail unless somebody wants me very specifically to do so given our our timing today, but just so people are aware it does apply to adult interdependent partners as well. Uh, so. The general rule is that family property is going to be divided equally on a marriage breakdown. So I like to say you put all of the property into one pot and the general rule is it's divided equally. Having said that, there are some exceptions. Um, We say that those exceptions are exempt property. Um, There's three categories of property. The first is exempt property, meaning this is exempted from division, I'm not sharing this with you, period. Then you have exempt property that is increasing in value. Um, These can be things like uh, maybe you had a house beforehand or a pension, something like that, where you had some value in it at the date of your cohabitation or the date of your marriage, and now it's worth more at the date of separation. So how do we treat that increase in value as a separate category of property? And then the third one is everything else. So we'll dive into these a little bit further. Exempt property are the things that I've listed here on the screen. And essentially it's a big pile of money that has been given or earned before the relationship or given or earned to a spouse separate from the relationship. So um, these are big gifts, they're inheritances, they're things that you had before the relationship that should come back to you, an insurance policy. Again, though, these need to be things that are just in one person's name. So for example, we see a lot of situations where parents have maybe gifted money to a couple for purchasing their first house. And later on separation, it becomes, a disagreement as to whether that money was gifted just to the child of the couple who gifted the money or if that was a gift to the couple themselves. So we need to be very clear and it's better to have records at the time about what is intended. Who is this money really being gifted to? Or, you know, inheritances are usually pretty clear. Insurance policy is also generally pretty clear, but um, always good to try and keep a really good record about that. Um, The second one is, oh, sorry, we're not quite there yet. So the market value of your exempt property is what's exempt from division. So if I had $100,000 in an RRSP account as of the date of my marriage, that $100,000 goes back to me when we're looking at dividing it, unless I've put it into joint names. So if you put your exempt property into joint names, you lose part of the exemption. That's a very key part of that. And you can lose it over and over. It becomes very muddy and unclear, but if you're trying to, we call it trace your exemption. If you're trying to track your funds through different assets and they're, the assets are held jointly, you risk losing your exemption. So um, making sure that those exempt funds are held in your sole name is very important then we have exempt property increasing in value. So if we go back to my example of you had a house you owned on your own beforehand, um, maybe there was equity of $100,000 in it at the time of separation, you now have equity of $500,000. That increase of $400,000 is divisible. But it's important to note that this is not a presumption of equal sharing. The sharing percentage can be anywhere from zero to 50 percent. And it really depends on things like how long were you married? Is it fair? Um, what does the court deem just and equitable in the circumstances? So if you were married for, I don't know, 10 months and market forces means that, I don't know, your investments went super hot. Maybe your spouse doesn't have a good claim to 50 percent of that increase. But maybe you're married 30 years, you have a bunch of kids together, everything was shared. You know, maybe even something owing to market forces is going to be shareable on a 50 50 basis. It all depends on what we're looking at as far as just and equitable goes. So these are the things that the court is going to consider when looking at how much of that increase in value is shared. What kind of contributions have been made by the spouses? Um, What are the means and needs of the spouses? What are their earnings, their income potential? How does this factor in? And again, this is very similar to a spousal support consideration. So the issues go hand in hand generally. Uh, But they're looking at, you know, prior court orders. Do you have some sort of agreement about it? And then anything else that's relevant can be thrown into that pot as well. So, um, you know, it's really challenging, I think, for people to kind of wrap their minds around the fact that, yes, I had an exemption, but I might need to share up to 50% of the increase in value in that exemption, even though my spouse did not contribute to it at all. So the third category of property that's in our pot is everything else. So when I'm using the word property, I'm not just talking about things like family homes, although I am, that goes into the pot, rental properties, time, shares, Um, pensions, you know, everything I've listed in here, including businesses. Even if your spouse is not listed on a business that you own, or you might be a shareholder or something in someone else's business, a director, uh, your business property interest goes into that front and is shareable. Um, Vehicles, anything valuable you might have is also in that pod. Things that our debts are also included mortgages lines of credit student loans etc those also all get put into that pot and is shareable at the end of the day so this is also i think surprised some of my clients particularly you know if i'm acting for the the saver client who's married to a spender and on the one side you have the saver putting away all the money and then the spender on the other side Um, It's very important that everyone's aware if you're married, it doesn't matter. The spending and the saving all goes into that same pot at the end of the day. So we started talking about, you know, what's the, the starting point for when we're figuring out property? What is the end point? It's not automatically the date of separation, which I think is surprising to people as well. It is legislated that the date we are going to divide property and the date everything is going to be valued at is the date of trial or an earlier date if the parties can agree. So if separating spouses want to have an agreement setting out how they will be dividing their property, they can certainly do so. And they can choose to have the date of division be the date of separation. They can also choose a different date. So if it makes sense to have September 31st, because that's the business year end. Uh, that's fine. Or if they want to use a calendar year end, that's fine. If they want to pick some other random date, also fine. It doesn't matter as long as the spouses can agree. But if you can't, you have to use the most recent date. Um, I had one matter where, you know, I acted for the Sabre client. Um, She came to me after a very lengthy separation of 10 plus years. So the Sabre client was very uh, obviously upset to learn that the date of division is now because she had been saving over those 10 years. A lot of her investments had grown, things like that. Luckily, you know, we were able to negotiate an earlier date of division in her favor. But again, it's very important for looking at separating. If there's any sort of property, get that information, at least know where you're going um, at the beginning, get that roadmap so you can consider if um, you need to be dividing your property quick. So this is not an exemption in the same way that we've been talking about things like receiving an inheritance, but there are circumstances where it's just not fair to have the money divided equally. So there are there is an ability to claim an unequal division of the family property, and these are some of the examples why. If we have somebody going out and spending piles of money on a new partner, or you know they're committing fraud by trying to you know transfer family property to a third party, um, for you know, not equal value or things like that, gambling addictions. Um, You can have some people spending some pretty serious amounts of money and it just wouldn't be fair for the other spouse to bear the burden of that. But if you have family debt, for example, accumulating because you're just living beyond your means or, um, you know, one party's maybe not paying appropriate support to the other party. And so there's debt for groceries or gas, things like that, or just regular spending. If the family itself is going on vacations, they can't afford things like that. Those are all going to be divisible debt. But if you have somebody who's out there, you know, spending thousands of dollars every month on prostitutes or drugs, you know, that's probably not fair to say that the family should bear the burden of those expenses. So we call that dissipating matrimonial property, and it would be um, accounted for in the overall division.
0: I'm going to jump in here, Christine, because the sure. obvious question to that type of uh, situation is how are you going to prove and track that in, in some cases, because that would be something they might want to be
1: hiding Yes, um, in my experience, people are not very good at hiding it though. Um, as part of the negotiations, we'll we'll talk about this in a, a moment about how we go through negotiating a property agreement, but the first step is exchanging financial disclosure and that includes things like bank statements, right? So um, you're looking at the bank statements and credit card statements, and you can go back for a significant period of time if there's good reason to do so. But, you know, even if people are are taking out piles of cash and it's just they can't justify where it's going, that might be some dissipation. Having said that, you know, we've seen some people who have alleged, you know, alcoholism, right? And they go to the liquor store, you know, frequently things like that. But unless we're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars, it's usually not worth having a disagreement about to this level. So it really has to be a significant amount of money. And again, yes, we need to try and prove that somehow, right? If, But it's usually going to be money going out of bank accounts or cash being withdrawn or lines of credit that we didn't know about before, things like that. But you can get banks just to disclose lines of credit and you know you can really chase it if, if need be. But again, it's not worthwhile to do that unless you think there's a real significant claim here. Right, because you'd have
0: to consider the balance of... What can be gained versus the the whole hassle and the complication that you're throwing Absolutely. into it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So uh, when we're looking at doing this. Obviously, um, I put a good lawyer in there. Um, It doesn't have to be me, but um, just knowing, I think, where what you're looking at, right? Thinking about, do you have these exemptions? How can we claim these? What is our next step? Because I'm firmly of the belief that knowledge is power, right? And just understanding where you're at going into a negotiation gives you more power and a better footing to get a fair outcome. And then As best you can, um, document, document, document. Right. So, in my prior example, where I'm saying, you know, maybe I had hundred thousand dollars in RSPs, having that bank statement from the time of my marriage is very important. Banks don't keep records forever, so. It's, up, it's incumbent on the party who's making that claim to prove it. And so you do that by having those documents or if you have a, a prenuptial or cohabitation agreement, memorializing, you know, these are the things that I have on the date that we're getting married is also helpful. Um, but yeah, otherwise you're looking at bank statements are the best things. Um, if you have a house beforehand, you know, keep the, the documents showing the purchase price and the amount of the mortgage at the time, right? Because it's really hard to go back and recreate this 15, 20 years later. And if your spouse says, I don't agree you had that beforehand, then you have to prove it. And that can be challenging sometimes. Um, It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be um, something that a judge can kind of hang their hat on and say, okay, it's more likely than not you did have that, right? So even if you have texts or other um, emails, things like that, that would tend to support this get that information and just keep that um, as you're moving forward because certainly it will be helpful in your negotiations to have. So then what do we do as lawyers when we're helping people negotiate these agreements? The first step is always getting that exchange of financial information and this is onerous frankly on parties but it's also so important. We've kind of talked about the different categories of property and what might uh, fit into this puzzle here. But if your lawyer doesn't understand all of what you have and how you got it, then we can't give you our best advice. So it's a very important process and it means people need to do a lot of homework to gather that. right? But getting those historical bank statements for the exemption claims you want to make. Um, Then we're looking at getting, you know, tax returns, regular bank statements, credit card statements. Um, We do sworn statements of income assets and liabilities where we set everything out. We might need property valuations. We might need business valuations. If you have a business So, there is a lot of information there. Certainly, financial statements for businesses as well need to be exchanged. So, we can have an understanding about, you know, is this a closely held business and really there's no value to it? The only value is this person doing the work, or, you know, is there some goodwill here? Is there a lot of retained earnings that can maybe uh, be divisible as property, right? These are the questions that any lawyer is going to have and that we need to understand so we can advise our clients appropriately. And then, of course, getting all that information uh, from the other side as well. And I can tell you that this part is kind of the bane of the family lawyer's existence. It is so frustrating because a lot of people bury their head in the sand or they just won't produce things and we have to go get disclosure orders and contempt orders and it's all very unpleasant. So if you you are looking at negotiating happily, hopefully an agreement for property, just giving it all upfront is much better. Uh, Then we engage in negotiation. Right. So once we have identified what there is, we can figure out what we think a fair settlement is because of the nuances. Lawyers are probably not agree or people are not going to agree on. You know, did you have that? Yes or no. I don't agree with the value of my business. Right. So there's all kinds of different areas that people can have disagreement about. Um, You can make offers to settle by way of written correspondence. You can go to mediation. Um, Mediation is with a third party, if you're having a property mediation, I would strongly suggest going to a lawyer who understands the law, um, as opposed to, you know, there's other mediators out there who are not lawyers. Um, But the third party there is really situated to help you both, they're not allowed to give you legal advice, but they can help you work toward that settlement, they can help you brainstorm different solutions. A mediated outcome is also good in the sense that you know the parties can agree on what they would like to do and what makes sense for them. So I've seen ones where they say, look, we're going to stay in the same house. We're going to live together, you know, kind of as these roommates for the next two years before we put the house up for sale. You're not going to get that kind of um, judgment if you were to litigate it. A judge is not going to make the two of you live together before they sell the house, even if that might make sense uh, for your mortgage renewal or whatever the case may be, right? So you can have more creative solutions if you mediate an agreement.
0: We're going to get right back to Christine, but I just wanted to tell you about an event that we've created, especially for you, that's coming up right away here in September. Divorce and separation affect every area of your life. And we've got experts that can help support you and give you information in so many of them and several are going to be presenting at our online conference. We have a divorce symposium that's coming up on Tuesday, September the 26th for three hours in the evening, and you will be able to listen to a whole variety of topics. If you can't be there, you can also get the replays. Tickets are available right now. There's early bird pricing on Eventbrite. All the links are in our show links or in our show notes. (laughs) And now let's get back to Christine and learn even more about what happens to your property and how can you best manage that during a divorce or a separation. And there are some questions coming up at the end that our guests had to ask.
1: Um, then there are some uh, avenues through the courthouse without litigation. So a non-binding JDR is a judicial dispute resolution. These are very effective mediation sessions with a justice of the Court of Kings bench. Um, they are very good because you are then in a position where a justice can say, you know, I've seen these things. I've heard your arguments. I don't believe you. You know, and they can be more directive in that sense. Um, The drawback to these is they're very challenging to get. They're very, very hard to get into because they're very popular. Um, Then we have EICCs you can go to. Uh, Those are early intervention case conferences. Again, those are very short sessions with a Justice of the Court of Kings bench, but you can only go to them if you have parenting issues and children involved. If your matter solely relates to property, they won't generally let you have an EICC. Um, Then there's a King's Bench Child Support Resolution Program. Again, this is primarily for child support, but you can also address spousal support. And if you have time, you can deal with property in them as well, because um, these are senior family lawyers who are volunteering their time to have these meetings with people. So they're happy to, you know, kind of get through as much as you can. But again, it always starts with child support and the property kind of falls. So unfortunately, you know, if you can't pretty quickly negotiate a settlement or agree to go to a, a mediation, there's there's not a lot of things that you can do for property to resolve it. So you have a you have many more options if you have parenting or support in issue. Um, But provided you are able to get to an agreement, whether that's with a third party assisting you or not, then your lawyers are going to draft the agreement. It's up to them to make sure everything is included, all the terms. I'll cover that in a second here. Um, And then once the lawyers are satisfied with the language, the parties are satisfied with the agreement, everyone signs it. And once it's signed, it is binding on you. So the terms. circling back to kind of the beginning, it's not just going to deal with property, but it will also spell out what are we doing with the kids, uh, what are our parenting arrangements, who's making decisions for them, our child support arrangements, spousal support, and then dividing the property. So who's keeping our house? Are we selling it? Are we buying it out? How are we dividing the pension? How are we accounting for that investments? Who's paying out what debts? Like it's very specific and it will absolutely have deadlines and um you know, I guess various mechanisms to ensure that the parties follow their contractual obligations, because at the end of the day, a family law contract is just like any other contract. You can sue on it. You can be sued under it if you fail to meet your obligations. So it's really important again, that this is done correctly and that people know what they're getting into, because if you sign it with disclosure and with a lawyer, um, it's very, very challenging to overturn that agreement. And then of course, um, we haven't really touched on this yet, but the process of divorce. So divorce is separate from the property negotiations and the agreement itself. But in my agreements, I always like to say, you know, are the parties going ahead with it and when? Um, because that's another important thing to consider as well. Is um, particularly if people have businesses, you can do certain things to buy out a spouse of a of a family business. But you can only do those things um, and minimize your tax best if you're still married. So we want to be really careful that we don't, you know, divorce you too soon. And then you have a big tax bill at the end of the day. So lots of different things all come together to make this global agreement.
0: That's interesting, Christine. Can you maybe give us an example of what you're talking about with the business division and how that timing is very important.
1: Sure. So mm-hmm. as I understand it, um, like for example, if somebody has a very successful business, there's a lot of money to be divided in a business, but it's you know, maybe just a husband and a wife, um, who are the directors and maybe they're the social shareholders as well. In order to buy out one spouse, often Um, accountants will recommend what's called a butterfly transaction which essentially means you know usually it's the wife well and in my example I use wife but it could be either who's getting bought out Um, she would need to go and get her own uh, corporation set up and then they do a bunch of uh, corporate work to buy and sell shares in each other's businesses and the effect of this is to have the money transferred from the original business into the new business in the wife's name. This is all done while the parties are uh, spouses and you can be separated spouses, but you're still a related party, which is what I gather is necessary to do this um, to delay the tax consequences. If you do this, without uh, or at once you're divorced, you're no longer a related party, which means that it's a, a disposition of the property and there's big tax consequences. So doing it as uh, separated spouses is fine. And then that way, you know, all the money in the new co is it's fine, Um, there is corporate tax that's been paid, but then uh, wife is not paying personal tax until she starts drawing. So she can then make her own tax plan with her people to make sure that um, she's not getting that big tax hit all at once, right? She doesn't have to liquidate all the funds at one time. So it's it's a very good tax planning device, but also um, then you don't get the tax for disposing of the property from the business. So I'm not a corporate lawyer, (laughs) and this is a very uh, general overview, Uh, nor am I a tax lawyer, but that's what I gather. So um, it's important, especially in those circumstances, that you're not um, getting divorced too early and therefore triggering that tax. Um, There's also important timelines to think about for pensions and um, particularly rights of uh, survivor benefits for pensions, which, you know as I understand it, can also end on on a divorce as well. So um, just making sure that if that's intended, that is the intention of it and you can proceed with divorce or did you want to continue to have those survivor benefits or other benefits for a while because you you like your separated spouse. Um, There's different considerations like that as well um and then i also just like to put it in right like who's going to pay for it who's going to uh be the one to to start the divorce even because sometimes we do these uh divisions of property you get the whole agreement and nobody's even started a divorce because it's much more important for them to deal with the kids and the money first so lots of different things to think about but i just like to be really really clear about the next steps or you know nobody's going to start a divorce yet cuz we don't we're not fussed about it. And that's fine too. I'll put that right in there. Like, that's okay. Um, but I just like to, to know what the next steps are for my clients. Thank you. Sure. So, um, having said all of that, I kind of have a little soapbox spiel about why, um, it's very important to be doing this with a lawyer. Um, There are paralegal services out there who will help you negotiate or mediate an agreement. They will prepare the agreement and then they send both parties out to get independent legal advice. And this can be problematic because I then have these people in my office and I'm talking to them about things like um, dissipation or exceptions or support. And they say, I had no idea I was entitled to any of this. And I didn't know that when I was negotiating this. And so I'm in the rough position of telling them this and essentially collapsing their deal, which is not what I like to do. But on the other hand, it very much is what I like to do. Um, people, as I said, right, knowledge is power. You need to understand what your entitlements are in order for you to you know, be signing this. And in order for me to sign anything in good conscience, I need to know that you've at least understood that. And then if you tell me, Christine, that's fine. I don't care. I want to have a bad deal. That's your call. But unless I can tell you, you know, here are your entitlements and this is where you're at, you're either above or below, I'm not doing my job well. So paralegals cannot give you legal advice. They can't tell you things like, yes, you're entitled to receive that, or yes, that's an exemption, or, you know, no, that's a bad claim. Um, I think that's a really key part of all of this is that the court does require independent legal advice for property division and they do it for a good reason because they don't want people making bad deals, or if they are, they at least want them doing so with their eyes wide open and knowing that they're making a bad deal. Um, Paralegals also don't have any insurance or oversight. So I've seen some of these, you know, bad deals, they are signed off on. And the next thing you know, you're up and back to the court of appeal a couple of times because there's just, maybe a provision is unclear or, um, you know, something was missed. Um, Maybe the pension wasn't done right. Or like I said, maybe there's a big tax hit or other liability that wasn't foreseen or discussed in the agreement and it falls apart. Um, All of this is to say that well-prepared agreements, like there's nothing easy or straightforward about them. And I think maybe to the untrained eye, they might all kind of appear to say the same thing, but I can tell you Uh, they do not. So um, it's just really important, especially if there's any money worth talking about. And that can be asset or liability, right? You might not want to walk away with all the tax debt of your partner's business, right? Um, But knowing that and making sure that you have an agreement you can rely upon is really important. So then what if we can't agree? We haven't really touched on this a whole lot yet, but if you can't agree in any of the methods that I have discussed so far, that means you are looking to a third party to make the decisions for you. Um, That third party is either an arbitrator or a judge. An arbitrator is a private third party who you pay to act as your private judge. It is very expensive for that reason because uh, you are paying that person usually by the hour. They range from, you know, I'd say the low is $500 to $900 an hour to get that decision. So it adds up very quickly, especially if you have a lawyer representing you in that arbitration hearing. A lot of the good arbitrators um, also, you know, don't have the easiest calendars to work with because they're desirable, right? They make good decisions. They're well thought out. They're, um, you know, family law practitioners who know what they're doing. Um, So of course everybody wants to see the same people. So um, it's also somewhat challenging to get in. Having said that, you know, court, not that much easier. It can be faster depending on what uh, process you might need to have. Um, You know, judges, you might have one who loves family law and comes from family law. You might have somebody who is a criminal lawyer, a corporate lawyer with the background who's now uh, hearing your family law matter, right? So you don't know who you're going to get, which is, I guess, a benefit to arbitration is you can pick your decision maker. Um, And then we have something called uh, binding JDR, which is that same process that I talked about a little bit before, where you go in, you're meeting with a judge. The first part of the day, you're trying to negotiate a settlement, if you can't, the judge can make a decision and have that be binding on the parties. So um, it's very quick. But again, these are like the binding JDRs in particular. There's very few dates and they're snapped up immediately. It's almost impossible to get them. So. Uh, can you, go oh, go sorry. ahead.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us about the process of working with an arbitrator? Just briefly, what would the steps be?
1: Yeah, so. Generally, I would say in Calgary, um, mediation arbitration are generally blended together. I do not like that process. I think it's terrible. I can chat a little bit more about that, but, um, most people in Calgary will start with the mediated process. So they'll try to see if they can get to an agreement on their own with the mediator. If they can't, one of the parties can trigger the arbitration. So Under the agreement, there will be terms set out, sorry, the mediation arbitration agreement will set out terms for how that's going to happen. Um, Depending on what the issues are, you can try and craft a process that fits for the party's needs. So by way of one example, um, I did an arbitration where we got really, really close in the mediation. I can't remember, they were maybe, I don't know, 75 grand apart or something. And we just said, okay, arbitrator, we're giving you the authority to decide. These are your goalposts, pick either number or one in between, because it wasn't worth it for the parties to have a protracted like trial over what was essentially a 75 grand difference, right? Um, So you can do things like that. You can do a really truncated process in arbitration, which can be really good. You can also waive other things that you would require in a trial. So um, if you go to a trial, um, there's a reporter present, there's going to be transcripts available, you have rights of appeal. um, In an arbitration, you may not, you may have limited rights of appeal or you may have waived your right of appeal altogether. So these agreements are also very important to understand there as well. Um, you can also decide, yes, we'll have expert witnesses, you can have something that resembles essentially a private trial where the parties are testifying, they have expert evidence give given about you know the value of the business, um, and then you can have a court reporter present, you can do all of that, you can do a private trial right in a boardroom, or you can have a different process where maybe you are exchanging written submissions about um, what the evidence is. So each party can do what we call an affidavit and say, this is my position on the parties. This is my evidence and go from there. Um, We just want a written decision or we just want this decided on our briefs of law. So there's very different ways of doing it. Um, I would say this is a very key thing before you even sign up for the process to, to talk to a lawyer about what it really looks like. Because when I have seen some of these or taken over from a file and they're in this process, you can really get hindered. Like if you have an important issue, such as you would like to, I don't know, change the child's school because they're being bullied or something, or um, you have a more urgent healthcare issue um, that you need to have decided. If you are in the mediation arbitration process, you can't go to court anymore. So if your arbitrator maybe it won't talk to you because you haven't paid their bill or, um, you know, they're just not available for three months. Like that's very much going to affect the day-to-day, right. And your ability to have a result quickly. So, um, there's some strong, I would guess, cautions about signing up for those med arb agreements, just kind of from the outset. So what I always like to recommend to people is, you know, look, let's try mediation. We can go there see how far we can get. If we can resolve some of your issues, great. Um, if not, you know, then we can look at what is the best process for this. And if we decide arbitration might be something, who's our arbitrator going to be? What is the process? What are the deadlines? Who's paying what? I want to know all of those things up front before my client signs up for the process as opposed to just having, we'll arbitrate it later if we don't have a decision or if we don't have a mediated agreement. I just think that's so risky and I've seen it lead to a lot of troubles for clients. Hmm.
0: So try and agree. <laughs> that's the point you don't want yes. to get to this point where you can't agree and have to go with a third party.
1: Absolutely. But I guess that's the other thing too, is, um, you know, don't let it drag on forever though, right? Like sometimes it's, it's bad, but you know, if you've got somebody who's not going to talk to you for a year and you need to move on, or, you know, you want to go buy a new house or something, like sometimes it is best just to, to have that order and be able to, to get it and move on. So I agree. It's not always, you know, the best. And if you are having productiveness discussions and things like that, that's great. But I've also seen people who just don't want to ever Take that step of court because it, it's scary, and I I understand that I get it, but you know that's where you get these separation negotiations that end up lasting three, four, five, 10 years down the road, and you're not you're not any further along. So, my two cents, anyways. And that's kind of the end for me. So I'm happy to take other questions. You I don't know if you had some come in or uh, I haven't
0: yet, but please drop them in the chat if anybody has questions. Um, there's Christine's contact information, and we'll give that a minute or so, and then we'll um, we'll uh, go back to just the regular screen. Now, I do want to mention that Christine has been on the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast, where she goes more into explaining common law, or as she calls apes, <laughs> which are adult independent partnerships, AIPs. And you, I would definitely go and check that out. If you watch it on our YouTube channel, you will also be able to see the slides that she presents where she explains more about common law arrangements and how that, how that is defined and how that can affect um, you as well in a, in a divorce, some things you might not have considered. So that is actually episode number 13 on the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast. Yeah. What do you commonly find that people could be doing better to be prepared? Is it the documentation?
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. That's it. Um, I think it's hard for people to have these discussions about money. And I think some people, you know, don't want to have to think about that. Right. Or, you know, I've also seen a lot of people that have kind of you know given away the decision making on the finances to their spouse and then taking it back is scary because they they're not sure about things or they're embarrassed to tell me you know look i don't even know what's in our investments because i haven't looked at it right i just trust the other one to do that and those are all fine things to tell me but tell me right because i need to know what we're dealing with and so i think for some people just having that conversation even with me is hard And then I give them a really long, scary checklist and I tell them it's long and scary. And I know that, and it's meant to cover everybody, right? Like whether you're, you know, you don't have much money at all to people who have lots of businesses or family trusts and things like that, like the complicated things, but I don't know yet where we're at until you give me back that checklist. Right. But, um, I think that's hard for people. And then of course you know, nobody wants to think about getting separated when they're getting married. So having that file of your exemptions, nobody has that, right. Unless they maybe been through the process before, or unless they have an agreement or something, or hopefully maybe they've listened to a podcast like this and go, Oh, I'm going to start that file just in case. Right. Um, Yeah, Because yeah, I think documenting that stuff becomes really hard. Um, And I mean, it's not as bad for like real estate, right? You can usually get historical appraisals and things like that. But um, for bank accounts, it can be really tricky.
0: Thank you for that. Yes, and I do hope, and that's the whole purpose of these podcasts and all the content that we are gathering and connecting people with us. So they they are informed and they aren't as stressed when they are in a position like this. We do have some questions that have come in After a divorce is finalized, each person has two years to ask for division of property. If no agreement is in place, if one wins money, the other spouse is
1: entitled to half. Yes, so this is a good point. So if, you know, you, you do your divorce, And then thereafter, you decide, oh, we better deal with our property. You do have time limitations for how quickly you can bring a property claim. Um, Winning the money, I don't know. That would be a tricky one, I think. And if I were acting for the spouse that, or I guess the former spouse in this case that won a lottery, I would say there's no just and equitable reason to be sharing that. And the court should apply those Section 8 factors and treat it as a gift, um, but of course, if you're actually the spouse didn't win the lottery, <laughs> you're going to say, no, no, uh, we haven't dealt with our family property. I've commenced to claim hopefully before the lottery was won, but um, regardless, that should be considered family property and it's treated divisibly. But as I sit here, I don't know that that has been decided before on a post-separate or post-divorce file. So interesting question to consider. It is.
0: And I'm happy that it brought clarification on division of property post-divorce. So so that was good. Thank you very much for addressing that. Uh, we have some thank yous for a thorough presentation. Great presentation. One clarification. Would tools, welding machine, and things that are required to do my career be included in property division, but they aren't part of the business?
1: Yes. So those are things that are treated in the same way as you know, like jewelry, artwork, um, valuable equipment. So we do see tools often. Um, but I would say if you are, you know, using that for your work and your spouse isn't, I mean, if you, if the two of you are in the same career, then maybe there's more of a disagreement about who should acquire that property. But if it's just one spouse, um, who's a welder, I gather, um, you know, really that property should come to you in your column. So you would say, yes, I, I have these, I'm counted for the value. And then maybe you offset it with something else. So, you know, you would get something of equivalent value or money um, so that I can keep the value of these assets. Again, provided that they were acquired during a relationship. If you came into the relationship with those tools, those would be exempt and you would take them back out again.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question, because that Mm -hmm. would impact their ability to, to create income. Absolutely. Yeah. So you would keep it, but it, like Christine said, you may have to balance that with giving somewhere else. Um, Another thank you for the presentation. And uh, any other Oh, here's another one. It's best to get an agreement made. So one can start saving money and not have to worry about the other spouse wanting to divide money property. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> the, the long and the short of it is I think that when people realize, you know, there's no magic to the date of separation, that everything you're acquiring, you know, is in that gray area, right? You might be able to successfully say, look, there shouldn't be a division uh, post separation of these things, but that that's not what the law says. So then you're hinging your hat on my spouse is going to agree that they can see my investments, my savings have gone up and they're not going to make a claim to it which is risky, right? So having that agreement in place, solidifying your entitlements and what you can do moving forward is absolutely beneficial for both. Very good questions. Mm -hmm. Now I want to honor
0: everyone's time. Um, I'll mention again, the disclaimer, this is for information and please take your specific questions to an appropriate uh, legal authority, such as Christine, to a family lawyer, someone who can help you actually figure out what's relevant to your personal situation. Um, So that is really important. Check out the podcast, YouTube channel. There's all kinds of topics that are covered there. Our website as well. Also watch for the magazine. So divorce magazine, Canada is free. Everything's free to, to, give you some more information and really help support you and and find the people who can help you get answers to what what you need to know um yes somebody asked where christine's office is it is in calgary but she answered that they do work across the province and i think that's that's something that we've seen that has come out of um, of the pandemic because we do have a lot more access to to people like christine Uh, I have another question. What would be the best resource for finding a good lawyer that isn't going to be excessively overpriced? And that's related to on your slide where you did say, please try and find a good lawyer. So Mm -hmm. that's a good question.
1: Yes, this is hard because I think like excessively overpriced is maybe different to different people, right? But yeah, if your, you know, net assets in the family are $50,000 and your lawyer is saying it's going to cost you 20 or 30 to get this done, like that's excessively overpriced. Um, if you have businesses and, you know, $5 million, getting it done for 50000 is probably great because you're going to need experts uh, weighing in. I can tell you those experts are expensive. Um, so really, it kind of depends, I guess, where your Your line is there. And it would be like just asking questions, right? Maybe talk to friends or colleagues um see who's got good blogs out there talk to them like um I talk to every single person who calls our office personally I never bill for that first phone call because I want them to to get a good handle on what our office is how we bill because we also don't bill by the hour I think the billable hour model is outdated and that's how you end up racking up lots of legal fees because people don't know when they're hiring them you know are you going to be efficient with my time or not and so I would just I guess generally caution you that the billable hour, like the hourly rate and the retainer amount is not how cheap your lawyer is going to be, right? So some of them will take like a $2,000 retainer, but they want that topped up every week, right? Or they flow through it very quickly. Um, some of them want, you know, a $5,000 retainer and that will last you, right? Because maybe they're more experienced, but their hourly rate is higher, Um, But I think that's part of it is if you go with somebody who's at least got some experience, they don't have to research everything they've, um, you know, been around it before they're going to hopefully be more efficient, but I think also, you know, going with your gut and like I said, if you, you know, can't get calls back just even trying to retain somebody. Where um, you get that like feeling, oh, I'm not really sure how these fees work or people can't give me a quote about what this is going to cost. Like those are the ones that you're probably going to pay way more than you want to pay, I guess I would say. Hopefully that helps.
0: <laughs> and is it fair to say that you can interview lawyers and find one that that feels like the best fit that seems to understand yeah. what, where you are and, and where you'd like to mm-hmm. get?
1: Absolutely. Because I think, yeah, if you're, you know, hiring somebody, but yeah, like I say, you have that feeling at the outset, you know, you're not going to be telling them the information that matters, right? And so I haven't even touched on anything like domestic violence, but you can make tort claims for domestic violence and things like that now. Like there's really interesting areas of law, but of course all of that is you know, precipitated on the fact that you are going to share that information with your lawyers. This is somebody you're going to be working very closely with. You're going to be sharing all of your financial information, your personal information. So it's really important that, you know, setting apart, I guess, the fees, but having that connection in a way, you know, this is the person I am entrusting to give me good advice on my family, right? The most important thing to me, like your kids, right? Those are way more important than money and things like that for, for people, right? So if you don't trust that person, if you don't have that good good feeling, good relationship at the outset, it's probably not going to get better as you go on.
0: That's a very good point, Christine. We do have another question. If a couple makes an agreement before seeking a lawyer's help for finalizing it, what would be an average cost for lawyer fees? Now, that that could be tough because you don't know how, like you mentioned earlier, how that agreement has been made have they been aware of every all their rights
1: yes so and i i meant to mention this but uh, that's a very good question because you certainly can negotiate between yourselves i call them you know the kitchen table agreement right like you sit down at your kitchen table this is what we've got this is what we're gonna do um you know probably you can get that agreement done for like 2500 bucks um If you have a little bit of upset or maybe you have a business or something, you might be looking closer to $5,000, but probably in that range. And, you know, if you go to somebody, they're still going to want you to provide that kitchen table agreement, but also provide all the supporting documentation so that they can review it and just make sure everything's covered in your kind of bullet point list. And then they have to draft the document and then at least meet with you one more time to do it. So uh, even in those circumstances, you know, I would say I'm pretty efficient at these things, but uh, even those agreements probably take me like 10 to 15 hours. And then in our office, my partner also reviews every agreement that I do because we really think, you know, two um, two eyes are better than one on everything. So I want to make sure, um, but we never bill separately for that either, but um, it's still a lot of work, even if you come with that I guess outline for an agreement. Thank
0: you for providing that. I mean, it does give them a ballpark figure to, to understand Mm -hmm. before they step in. Okay, one more. uh, I just want to add here we had another comment that relates to a question that came up earlier. And one of our attendants has mentioned that she's actually on her second lawyer, the first one had made a total mess of things that She's saying, I wouldn't worry about the price. My second lawyer is more money, but at mm-hmm. least is competent. The first one was a recommendation, but was a nightmare. And she's uh, giving a little bit of information here as far as just to quantify that, that she said, I'm not rich, but at least I have a better no- lawyer now. So really, like you said, find somebody that is there that you can trust, that you can really feel um will be representing you in the best way. And it may cost more than you had originally anticipated, but that is very important. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I really love how we are here to support each other and uh, create that whole atmosphere. Thank you for your time. Thank you everyone for showing up. Please jump in on other meetings that we have. We have some where we don't have a keynote speaker. Those are also amazing because we do have support people such as you know lawyers and, and uh Coaches and uh, financial people mortgage like who knows he's going to show up and bring your questions and connect with each other uh, at the connect groups and then watch for topics in our learn groups and you're always welcome, share it with a friend and hopefully that 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 will be beneficial to you. Um, what was this other comment it's more looking for something word of mouth. That is something that happens too often thank you for your time was a big help. Uh, we got a lot of thank yous. Thank you, Christine. Thank you all for contributing and bringing such amazing questions. And uh, you will be able to find this probably within a month at the most that the replay will be available on the YouTube channel and in the podcast. So have a fantastic rest of your day.
1: Thank you all so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hopefully you heard something today that helps you wherever you might be in life. Do you have questions or a suggestion for a topic you want to know more about? Let me know. Check the show notes for all the contact information. Follow this podcast and find us on social. Know anyone who might find this information helpful? Be a friend and share it. And hey, thank you for hanging out with me today. Keep smiling that beautiful smile. The world needs your sunshine. It means a lot that you spend this time with us and meet our experts and professionals who can help you through divorce or separation. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, divorcemagazinecanada.com. The link is in the show notes. Our disclaimer, divorce resource groups, blog, and all content including our podcast, is intended to educate and provide quality, credible resource information. The contents should not be used as factual until consultation with the appropriate professionals for any guidance. Divorce Magazine Canada does not constitute endorsements for nor liability for any claims made in the presenting of this information.